Once we were dead, separated from God. But Scripture describes a great mystery that moves us from death to life. A union between the created and the divine. United with Christ, we have an inheritance. We are redeemed and we are restored from our brokenness. But how do we experience this great mystery? How do we get from life as we know it to union with the Son of God? And what does it mean to be found in Christ? Well, as you just saw, we are going to continue a series this week looking at the book of Ephesians. So I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the blue ones nearby you somewhere in the pew. It'll be on page 568 today. One of the jobs that has fallen to me simply because of my age since about 15 years ago was the job of IT support. If anyone in this room is a millennial, you can probably identify to I do. I'm a proudly part of that generation that grew up without a cell phone. So you can like think back to all the fun times where your parents couldn't track your every move or your friends couldn't get a hold of you through texts 24-7. But as soon as the cell phones came out, we were all over them. But I still remember a distinct shift in my parents as well. We bought a computer after we moved to Minnesota in about 2002, and my mom made me wait until my dad was home to start plugging cables in. And essentially, from that point on, I became the tech support. And my dad wasn't allowed to fix, try to fix computers anymore. But because of my uh, uh, technological understanding, uh, it led to me being able to get my first job out of college, teaching new hire nurses how to use the charting software at the hospital. The people that would come into these things were from all sorts of different backgrounds, especially in regards to computers. So the teachers would get together after classes and swap stories about, uh, horror stories about what was happening in the class. My favorite story that came out was someone had a class they were teaching where someone walked in, picked up the mouse by the cord and said, what is this? Those days you knew it was gonna be a really long day. But through a lot of these uh, conversations, you learn to ask two really important questions uh, that I just these are a freebie for you. You don't even need to go to college to learn how to help these. Two questions. First, did you turn it off and turn it back on? The second question is, is it plugged in? Those will solve, I'm not kidding, 90% of your technological issues. Now, if you didn't know this, technology requires some kind of power in order for it to work. Like, either have a battery in it that, that recharges, or you have to replace the battery, or it just needs to stay in if you've got one of those desktop computers 24-7. So if you've seen something like this with a surge protector, it's not gonna work. I can't tell you how many times I've seen something like this. Like, is it plugged in? Yes, I swear it's plugged in. And you trace the cable and you're like, I'm really sorry, it is not plugged in. So just as a surge protector actually needs to be plugged into the correct place, into an outlet in the wall to get power and work, we today are going to be looking at what it means for us to remain connected, plugged in to God. Last week we looked at the theme of being in Christ, which Paul uses to summarize the first section here, and this week uh, we're going to be looking at some of the implications of being in Christ. Last week we saw Paul praising God. Remember, it was just this Trinitarian praise for God's sovereignty, which is a fancy way of saying his power and his authority. And because God is sovereign, he brings everything to pass as he sees fit. This week what we're gonna be looking at is Paul praying for that sovereignty, again, power and authority to be made manifest or demonstrated in the lives of the Ephesians. 
So hopefully by now you have Ephesians chapter one. If you do, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. Ephesians one will begin in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might." that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As you're seated, I invite you to pray with me once again. God, we are reminded that you are God. You are in complete control and we are not. Yet so often we we try to put ourselves in your place. We try to create or craft little gods in our image or even worse, we we try to make you into our image. So I pray that we today would be reminded that, that you are God and that we are not. We thank you for your sovereign power that you predestined before the dawn of creation to draw us and conform us into yourself, that is to make us holy, just like you are holy. May we as your people submit ourselves to your word. We thank you for your word made flesh and pray that we will continue keeping our eyes and our gaze on Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Pray all these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Well, Paul this week is is going to pray. And the first thing he begins praying for is is he prays for gratitude. So Paul actually continues this idea and the theme that we saw last week. So last week, a brief summary is Paul is praising God who from eternity past had planned to send Jesus to earth to provide salvation. That salvation is demonstrated by the seal in our lives of the Holy Spirit. And because of that seal, we are now in Christ, which leads to Paul now giving thanks. Remember, last week was the longest run-on sentence in any ancient Greek document. Today is like the second longest run-on sentence in any ancient Greek document. This is just one long ranting from Paul on what it means and what he's praying for for the Ephesian people. So he begins, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So two keys here, faith in and love toward. Those two things are intimately connected in here. What this is saying is if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it has to manifest itself in love toward other believers. This is not optional for us. Now, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the, um, writing during World War II, was, was killed by the Nazi regime, but wrote a little book called Life Together that is a beautiful explanation of what it means for us to have fellowship with each other under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In there, what one of the things uh, uh, Bonhoeffer says is Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God, there's that word again, in Christ, in which we may participate. In other words, what, what he is saying is what, what Paul's talking about in Ephesians is already happening. There's a brotherhood that is already going on, but we have a decision to make about whether or not we are going to demonstrate that here in our body. 
And, and this idea is, is one of the ways our culture today struggles to understand a common first century idea. That is that none of us exist in complete isolation. But that is especially or even doubly true for those of us who are now in Christ. We saw this explicitly a couple years ago. We did a series looking at 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 2.10, he says, once you were not a people, that is, once you didn't have a group to associate with, but now you are God's people. So what God is doing in, in his body, the church, today is taking individuals, he's calling us out individually and bringing them into a family. That means that regardless of how healthy or dysfunctional your biological family is, God has created and invited you in to a brand new family that you have the opportunity to participate in through faith. We saw this idea last week too. We are called individually, but then we're called into a new community. And this idea that we are called into the church and then what the church should look like is going to continue developing further and further throughout that book. So keep it in mind over the next few months. But this is also something that Jesus said explicitly in John 13, 35. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have, does anyone know the word? Love for one another. So faith in Jesus leads to and is evidenced by love toward other disciples of Jesus. You can't be a disciple of Jesus and not love other believers. This is a good heart check for us to consider and ponder over regularly. Is your faith being evidenced by your love, care, and concern for your other brothers and sisters? So because the Ephesian church was demonstrating this love, Paul will actually go on and explicitly give thanks for them. So he says, because I've heard of your faith in and love toward, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now Paul gives thanks actually in, in a number of his letters, but Ephesians is the only book in, in Paul's corpus that we have that contains both praise and thanksgiving. And I think a large part of this is because of the long period of time that Paul spent with the Ephesian church, as well as those who he had a close relationship with. So in Acts 19 and 20, it actually recounts Paul's time with the Ephesians. And he was there for like three years, just pouring himself into them. And then Acts 19 talks about how the word of the gospel had spread throughout all of Asia, which is where Ephesus was like the center point of. In Acts 20, it recounts the last time Paul would ever have an encounter with someone from the church at Ephesus. And the, the uh, elders of the church actually come and meet with him. And, and it, it, at the last verse, I think it's verse 20, it says, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. So Paul and the Ephesian church had this really close, intimate connection. They were very concerned and cared for each other. And Paul has a lot of different things that he gives thanks for in all his letters. So I want to take some time to, to look at the kinds of things Paul is giving thanks for, to remind us of things that we today should be giving thanks for. First, in Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Paul gives thanks because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. This assumes a couple things from Paul. The first is that these people actually have a life, a faith that is worth proclaiming. But then secondarily, it also assumes that you're proclaiming your faith. So this should ask, uh, force us to ask the question, do you have a faith that is worth sharing with other people or is it just a tack on to everything else you're doing? Similarly, are you intentionally sharing your faith, proclaiming your faith to those you come into contact with or again, is it just a tack on? Second one, 1 Corinthians 1.14, he gives thanks because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. 
So for all of us who are now in Christ, we have God's grace that has been given to us in an overwhelming flood, grace upon grace. In Ephesians 1, the previous section that we saw, it was grace that was lavished upon us. Do you give thanks for God's grace on a regular basis? Philippians 1.5, he gives thanks because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is a reminder for us to give thanks for all the ways that we can be a part of a bigger movement So we are not the only Christians in the entire world, if you didn't know. We are part of a a denomination that sends missionaries all over the world. We're a part of a denomination that's other churches reaching the same areas of the country that we are in, or even across the country, or even the the number of multiple missionaries that we support. So navigators, we do support people with crew uh, going overseas. This is part of the reason we've been bringing some of our missional partners in regularly. They tell us specific things to pray for, reminds us that we are not here all by ourselves on an island. It tells us that we have partnerships because of the gospel message. You can go walk out there right now and see all the missionaries that we support on the wall. Pray for them because we have partnered together with them. In Colossians verses uh, four and five, he gives thanks, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now this one is almost the same as what we see in Ephesians. He gives thanks for their faith in Christ and the love that they have towards other believers. But then he goes on, this is important, to give thanks for the gospel message. Do you give thanks for that word that saves and sanctifies both you and the people that are sitting around you? See, the gospel in and of itself is worth giving thanks to God for every single day you wake up. Every day we're reminded that his mercies are new, that the gospel is true and has bearing on all of our lives. Another one, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, he gives thanks because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Are you seeing the theme? So in, in 2 Thessalonians, he's say, saying thanks for the same thing that we saw in Ephesians. 2 Timothy 1.4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you. That I, so he's giving thanks, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. This one really stood out to me this week as we're coming off of, of uh, the pandemic and the isolation and, and um, I've, I've talked about the like, deaths of despair that are increasing in our country over the past couple years because people live in isolation. Uh, this is a reminder to me, we, we are embodied people. Like we can't, se- we, we like to separate ourselves and they're like that's the soul part of me and that's the body part of me. We can't do that. This is a reminder to me that it's not enough to just do church online. We need to be together to fill each other with joy. Now I know there's uh, situations that make this difficult, whether you're in surgery or, or getting sick or some of those kinds of things, but there is an isolation that comes from that when we are commanded to be together, to encourage each other. It's hard to have joy with someone when you're seeing them through a screen. The last one. In Philemon, verse five, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, exactly the same as Ephesians. Now, looking at this list, all the things that we see Paul giving thanks for, how do your prayers match up? Are you regularly giving thanks for these kinds of things as you see them taking place around you? But what about even giving thanks for our brothers and sisters around the world? and praying that God would strengthen them, that they would believe and apply and hold tightly to the gospel message. Or maybe not even the world, maybe you just need to start praying for the brothers and sisters who are sitting next to you. I think of a a great example of this is in Romans 12, 15, where Paul commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Why is that so hard for us to do? Especially the rejoicing part. 
I think it's easier, as, as I've uh, been in the church my whole life, it's easier to enter in when someone is weeping. It's a lot harder to enter in when someone is rejoicing. Like we look at someone's job promotion and complain that we keep getting passed over at our job. Uh, we look at someone else's house and complain that ours is too small. We look at someone else's kids and wish that ours were better behaved. But Ephesians is reminding us that God is behind every single one of those things. And God is also going ahead of you and then from beginning to end, he is walking with you no matter what else is going on in your life. The question for us is do you view him as enough for you or are you going to continue looking to the world for your satisfaction and worth? See, for all of us, when we look at each other, we're going to be off with the standards that we are expecting to pursue because the standard that we're supposed to be comparing all of ourselves to is Jesus. And if we look at that standard, then every single one of us is off. So this is what Paul is giving thanks for throughout his letters, but then he goes on in the book of Ephesians to talk through and pray some things specifically in the life of the church. So let's look at this. Paul prays for three things here. Verse 17, he prays for growth in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, he prays for the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. And then verse 19, he prays to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. So first is growth in the knowledge. So the same spirit that we saw in last week's section that serves as the seal of our redemption is what leads to and manifests itself in wisdom and revelation. So when we are saved, the spirit begins working in our lives to reveal, to open up truths of the Bible to us and then begins shaping and forming us into the image of Jesus. But this has to start by growing in the wisdom and knowledge of him, which means we require the Holy Spirit to actually understand the things of God. I remember when I was in college, a professor posed a question, can an unbeliever read and understand the Bible? Like at first glance, it seems like an easy enough answer, right? Like obviously, as long as the Bible is in the language that that person can read, there's understanding that can come from it, just like there's understanding that can come from reading any book that you can read. But without your spiritual eyes opened, you'll miss the ways that God has created all of the Bible to connect together and ultimately point to him, which we'll see more clearly in the next section as well. Uh, one of the... the Commentaries I was reading on this was, was a book called Praying with Paul that I would highly recommend by uh, Dr. D.A. Carson. Um, in there and in this section, he asks the question, do you feel you know God well enough? Do you feel you know God well enough? And then he goes on, surely no thoughtful Christian would want to answer such a question in the affirmative. Indeed, the more we get to know God, the more we want to know him better. God is an, a limitless well. You will never fully understand or comprehend him. There's a, a story in, in Prince Caspian. So it's the second book in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, where the, the Pensieve children are, are brought back into Narnia. They're, they're not sure how they got there, what, what they're going to be doing there, but suddenly a Lucy, the youngest one, hears a voice calling her name at night. She looks around, no one else is awake, and she gets up and starts chasing after and looking for this voice. Eventually, she stumbles across Aslan, which, spoiler alert, is a lion. If you haven't read the books, sorry. You've had like 70 years to read them. But she finds Aslan, and the first thing she says to Aslan is, Aslan, you're bigger. He replied, that is because you are older, little one. She said, not because you are? He replies, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. 
Now, it assumes that there's actually growth in knowledge that is taking place here, right? You can't just assume just because someone is old that they are growing in knowledge and understanding of who God is. So this forces us to ask the question, are you continuing to grow in knowledge? Are you being intentional about continuing to study God through his word and in relationship with other believers who can help you grow in the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him? One of the things that, that has really stood out to me over the past probably five years is, is even the study and this growth in the wisdom and understanding of who God is is meant to be a communal project. Remember, verse two, what, one of, or not two, the second verse in this section, so 16. Uh, what Paul said is, is he praises them for the love for all the saints. So even the study of the Bible that is something that is great to do on your own, but it's meant to take context within the, commu- the context of community. So it's meant to be studied, it's meant to be lived out with other people. The second thing Paul prays for is having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Today what we talk about when we talk about the heart is like the center place of our emotions. How do you feel? And I had to explain to my kids recently how someone could be in your heart, which is just a weird idea. But in the first century, uh, the heart was viewed more like what we would view as the mind today, like the center of everything that we are. Like the very center of your being in the first century was described as your heart. Everything flows out of your heart. Now, this, this second piece, the eyes of your heart enlightened, is an implication of growing in the knowledge of Christ. We can't have our eyes, the eyes of our heart enlightened unless we're growing in the knowledge of him. But then it also continues that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, this idea, too, I think runs completely contrary to the way our world is forcing us to operate. As you look around the world, do any of you get the sense or the idea that there is hope in the world? Like all the, all the news sources, all the headlines, all these pieces that we read talk about how we should have no hope. I've even gotten to de- into debates over this summer with people who wanted to argue that the world is just getting worse and worse and worse, so we just let it go and trust that God's going to come back and fix everything. I was listening to a podcast yesterday on the need for us as Christians to have a, like change our construct of the way we view time. Because if, if you look at, at just the past 40 years, Did you know that today, the divorce rates in the United States alone are the lowest they've been since 1970? Is that bad news? No, but that won't won't sell newspapers. Or did you know that the murder rate uh, across our country has dropped by a third since 1990? And that includes a significant uptick since 2020 with, with COVID. Like, there are good things that are happening in the world, but if you read just the headlines, you'll never know it. Another one that, that, that blew me away when I first discovered it, um, did you know that the rate of, of uh, immense pro- poverty in the world is tiny today? It's like less than, than uh, four, I believe it's less than 4% of the entire world is living in complete poverty, which they, they say is less than $2 a day. Do you know what that number was in, in uh, the late 1800s? 80%. Within two centuries, like, and, and so there, there's even people that are arguing, take COVID out of the equation, uh, but if things had progressed as they normally had, poverty would essentially have been eliminated by 2040. That's ridiculous. That, that's the way God is continuing to work. His common grace is extended to the entire world. But as we, we look around us, I see mostly a pessimistic outlook at the world, don't you? Like one that is without hope. Now when we read the book of Ephesians, hope is actually used four different times throughout the book. Ephesians 1.12, 1.18, 2.12, and 4.4. 4. 
The first thing we see is that being a hope-filled people comes about only because we are in Christ. Remember, that was the theme that we saw last week. Then we see that, that, that this hope connects us to some call that God has done, the hope to which he has called you. Same thing in 4.4, uh, you are called to the one hope that belongs to, again, your call. Finally, we see in chapter two, verse two, which we'll look at next week, being, uh, uh, for those who are not in Christ, they don't have any hope. So 2.12 says, remember that you were at that time separated, that's a key, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So for, for those of us who are now in Christ, should uh, chapter 2.12 or these three other texts describe us today? Having no hope or having hope. See, once we're saved, we suddenly have nothing else to fear. And think of Paul, the guy that is writing this Ephesian letter. He, throughout most of his life, had this, this threat of, uh, of persecution or killing just hanging over his head through everything he was doing. And he's the guy that writes, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And then this guy is shipwrecked, he's starved, he is beaten, and then out of that he writes, I've learned the secret to being content. Like, this guy is impossible. He's like uh, the, the energizer bunny. He just keeps going, and nothing will prevent him from, from preaching the gospel message. But that hope that Paul has is the same hope that we can have if, as we saw last week, we keep our eyes fixed on the right place instead of becoming bogged down and losing hope by looking at our immediate context. And the reality is that we should have complete hope because we know the end of history. That means that we can have complete hope in God, which means our time perspective needs to change. Instead of focusing on the here and now or maybe just the past two years since COVID came, we need to have an eternal perspective. So Jesus, when he came, actually told us the purpose and the direction that everything is headed towards. And the reason he did that is so that we today can have hope. We can persevere no matter what is going on in our lives. This means we should ask the question, are you a hope-filled person? Are your prayers marked by hope or are they marked by complaining about what's going on in your life? And we realize that this hope comes about because of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So we need to know this hope and this glorious inheritance and this glorious inheritance is part of the reason we can have hope because we know what is waiting for us. This comes about because of a couple things Paul talked about in the previous section. The first is the reality of adoption. We sang about that together this morning. We were on once enemies with God, but now he has brought us in, which leads to his blessings being lavished upon us, which is finally leading us to an eternal inheritance that is made manifest by the Spirit within us. But there's another element to this inheritance. While we've been giving every spiritual blessing from God, we are his glorious inheritance. See, it's this riches of his glorious inheritance, key word there, in the saints. That just blew my mind as I was reading through this this week because it doesn't seem fair, does it? Like we get all the blessings that come from what God has accomplished on our behalf and he gets us. That's like the worst trade ever. But that's exactly what, what God has done. And this is exactly why we need the hope of the gospel message because God's plan from eternity past has been to give his people everything they need by him losing everything. 
We've been giving every spiritual blessing. He bore the penalty for our eternal rebellion. We rejoice in this reality now, today, because we have access to his glorious inheritance. Now, note that this glorious inheritance is not only a future promise, it's a present reality. All the blessings that Jesus had when he was on earth are available to us today. Even in the New Testament times, people would forget to ask to come before God and ask him to lead and guide them. How often do we not ask? How often do we not trust? How often do we forget that we are now sons and daughters of the Most High God with all the rights and privileges that come along with us? Now this is meant to be a reminder to all of us because all of this is only possible because as we saw last week, because of God's supremacy. Again, his power and authority. That leads us to the third thing that Paul is praying for here. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now, notice all these words that Paul is using to talk about power here. I'll change the color. Immeasurable greatness, his power, and great might. Like it's almost as if Paul can't come up with enough descriptors of how powerful God is. And all of these are geared towards those who believe. Oh, remember Ephesus, the, the uh, center that Paul is writing to was the center of a magical and cultic religions. So they had a huge temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis as well as various other inscriptions and incantations that they used to say and invoke the right of various other gods. So in Acts 19.19, 19, we actually read what happened when the gospel message began invading people's lives in Ephesus. So Acts 19.19 19 says, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them all and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So you could translate that 50, like when you read uh, uh, descriptions in the Bible of money, it's often hard for us to, to like wrap our minds around how much money this would be. So they, they, scholars think that the 50,000 pieces of silver would equate to 50,000 days wages. Today, the average worker in the U.S. earns $216 a day. So that's just, just the average of everyone in the country, which means, if you do the math, this would have been $10.8 million that people just brought and burned. But what's fascinating to me is, is we think, we, we operate, we assume that like this magic and occultic obsession was only something that was taking place in the first century. But what is really interesting as, as I've been reading and studying this is people today are just as obsessed with their various religious options. There's a fascinating book that, that uh, documents some of these changes that are taking place. It's called Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. Um, don't write that down because I don't want you to read it. It's, just, it's got some weird stuff in there that is, and it's, it's not coming from a completely Christian perspective. It's just someone from, like a sociologist who is looking at, at the world around us and looking at all the ways people try to uh, come up with their own religion. So it's, it's, it's just looking at, at all these religious options that people have today because whether you like to admit it or not, everyone believes in something. So her premise in the book is, is she traces what she dubs remixed religion. And what many people do today is they just take like little bits and pieces that they like from all sorts of various options, throw them into a pot, and then claim that's what they follow. So she says early on in the book, one of the biggest problems for secular culture is that you have to cobble together and make it yourself, which means essentially each person in our culture and context today has become their own pastor, priest, or in some cases, God. Later on in the book, she says, it's up on the screen, these new institutional religions, each one at its core, a, this is really important, a religion of the self, 
Risk creating an increasingly balkanized, that's just a way of saying divided, so risk creating an increasingly divided American culture. One in which our desire for personal authenticity and experiential fulfillment takes precedent over our willingness to build a coherent ideological systems and functional sustainable institutions. When we are all our own high priests, who is willing to kneel? I think that's a fascinating look at our, our culture today. Because whether people want to admit it or realize and acknowledge this or not, we're all religious. We're all looking for hope and satisfaction and comfort from something. Uh, did you know that there are more witches today in the United States than Jehovah's Witness? Like I keep telling you that, that like Wiccan and uh, witchcraft is on the rise in our culture. So there are over a million witches in the United, like they will identify on surveys as a witch. So I found out there are monthly witch subscription boxes you can buy. There are witch blogs and newsletters that have continued to grow over the past decade. Even Sephora, uh, it's apparently a makeup store. I've never been there in my life. It's, uh, Sephora, in 2018, sold what they called a starter witch kit, which for only $42 you could have. Then after a few weeks, they had to pull it off the shelves because they were accused of cultural appropriation. Now, all of this stuff should not surprise us. There's nothing new under the sun. The devil's bag of tricks isn't limitless. He's just really good at repackaging and rebranding things. And when you have the hyper-individualism in our cultural context, there's no one that's willing to push for logical consistencies or the ways that these various beliefs actually compete and fight with each other. Now, we'll see some more explicit ways to pray for or against these ideas when we get to Ephesians chapter six, but for now, Paul goes on to expound the ways that God's mighty or supreme power is made manifest through Christ. So this power, similar to the Paul's prayer, which had three focuses here, this power is made manifest in three different areas. First, the resurrection. Second, the ascension. And third, in Jesus' supreme authority. So first, the resurrection. Jesus' death, from all worldly perspectives, would have looked like the complete defeat of God's plan. But surprise, surprise, Jesus didn't stay dead. Instead, he rose from the grave three days later, and then he ascended into heaven to sit at God's right hand, which is the most privileged place to sit. And this place where Jesus now sits is above any other power, dominion, ruler, authority, or name. Essentially what Paul is saying, so in, in uh, verse 21, above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What Paul is doing here is he's, he's talking about all these things or these ideas that the cults or magic religions would have used to invoke good luck or good charm on their lives. There's even a, a third century document that we have discovered near Ephesus that talks about the need to know the specific deity's name that you are trying to get or receive a blessing from. So when Paul says the name that is above every other name, you don't need to know any other name. Jesus' name is the only one that is going to matter for eternity. And finally, the, the manifestation or, or the visible demonstration of, of Jesus' ascension means that he has complete authority. So verse 22, he put, all things under his feet. There's nothing else. There's no other names. There's no other people. There are no other deities that you need to invoke because everything's under his feet, which means we don't ever have to be afraid. There's nothing that has been, there's nothing that is, and there's nothing that will be that could ever defeat him. But then it's kind of weird or takes a turn that wouldn't make sense to our minds today because notice how this authority is demonstrated today. So 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to what? To the church. 
So the church today is meant to be the place where Jesus' authority is made visible in the world. So brothers and sisters, we don't need tarot cards. We don't need incantations. We don't need spells. We don't even need a starter witch kit for $42 from Sephora. Because what we have is each other. And what we together are supposed to do is demonstrate Jesus' rule and reign over all of the world. So we together contain the fullness of Jesus, which means we as the church need to actually be the church. Now you may have heard it's, it's really uh, cool or trendy today to deconstruct or to just take pot shots at the church so people will say I love Jesus but I hate the church. Now I, I'm not saying this to marginalize or minimize those who have been hurt by those who claim the name of Christ. The church is full of sinners and believe it or not, sinners are guaranteed to hurt you. But that doesn't mean we just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because until the day that Christ returns and sets up his kingdom here, just like it is in heaven right now, the church will continue to hurt people. The church will continue to fall short of what God has called us to be, but by God's grace, the church is still going to be used to demonstrate God's rule and reign to the world. So we need to live like we believe the hope of the gospel and live like we believe in the call that God has placed in our lives. Like it seems that, that churches have a tendency to just chase after fads that come and go. Like, what's, what's the church down the street doing? How's that pastor dressing? What music do they do? Instead, what I think we need to get back to is what has God explicitly called and commanded us to be? And that is a loving people who care for each other, who live, live like we actually have hope, not like we are despondent or walking around with our shoulders sagging as if the world is gonna fall apart. Like, we're not chicken little running like the sky is falling. We actually have a reason to give hope and live in light of God's sovereignty. So church, today, we, all of us, have the power we need to fight against the spiritual forces of darkness and even to fight against the sin inside of us that would prevent us from loving our fellow believers. We can continue asking God to fill us and and, and continue letting his power be at work in us to be all that he has called us to be. And you know one of the best ways that we can fight against the forces of darkness? We can commit ourselves to a church. We unite ourselves to others who are not exactly like us but are all striving to become more like Jesus. As I, I quoted from Bonhoeffer earlier, it is already, this brotherhood is already taking place all around us but you now can participate in the brotherhood. And one of the, days, the ways that Jesus actually told us to participate in this brotherhood is through the act of communion. So if you didn't get communion elements, I'd encourage you when we stand up to sing a couple songs, you can just sneak right back and grab a couple of them. But just as the cross doesn't make sense as the source of redemption and and power in our minds, communion doesn't make sense to those whose eyes have not yet been enlightened. Did you know that early Christians were actually accused of being cannibals? Because they went around telling people, we eat and eat the the the, uh, body of Jesus and we drink his blood. But what we're doing when we, when we ingest uh, these, these two elements into our body is we are doing a visible reminder of the power that is available to us because of the broken body and the shed blood of our Messiah. Now, as Paul encourages in 1 Corinthians 11, I'd encourage you to please examine yourselves before you take. Think through the things that Paul prayed for in this passage today and pray them to God in preparation for us celebrating together and uniting ourselves together. Now, if you are not yet a believer, I'd encourage you to just let the elements pass by. You aren't required to take these, but instead, let me encourage you to take up the cause of Christ. Put your faith in him so that you can have a new sense of hope in the gospel message. Would you pray with me?
God, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you for the gospel that saves us, for the gospel that, that permeates into our lives, for the gospel that shapes and forms us day by day into the image of your one and only son. I pray that you would work in all of us to help us remember that nothing can separate us from you. Because you have complete power and authority, because you have designed how the entire world operates and will continue to exist, that you would help us to be a hope-filled people who continue looking for opportunities to share with others the reason for the hope that we have within us. I'd help us not to become discouraged, but help us to continue encouraging each other today as long as it's called today because it's the only opportunity we have. Help us to remain faithful until the day that you return or call us home. And I pray that we as your people would visibly demonstrate, believe, and cling to the truths of the gospel message that we just preached. God, please work in our lives, convict us of sin, draw us to yourself, and day by day conform us more into the image of your son. We pray all these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.